Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. I'm your host, Sucheta Kamath, and I believe by tying the findings from neuroscience, psychology, and education into everyday transformations, a lot can happen to our personal and collective growth. This podcast is, of course, fueled by three goals. One is to explain uh, what executive function is, how it's crucial for our personal development, uh, interpersonal uh, relationships, self-sufficiency, uh, but also its implication for moral development. Uh, second is to help motivate uh, our current self to investigate our blind spots and uh, find ways to grow and change, uh, particularly consult the experts, uh, particularly like our guests who have spent their lifetime in bringing some advances that may open our eyes to possibilities, and lastly, to really help uh, people create a playbook for personal success. And uh, because uh, the framing of executive function is these are uh, malleable skills and they grow and ex uh, develop exponentially with exposure, experience, practice, and expert feedback. Uh, today's topic is about um, gullibility, is at least how I would say, and I would say no one likes to be conned, fooled, or taken advantage of. However, many of us uh, fall prey to someone else's attempt to get us conned, fooled, and <laughs> so that they can take advantage of us. And in preparation for this uh, podcast, I made a list of, um, again, in publicly, I'm willing to admit kind of <laughs> situations where I was taken advantage of, and I easily could list 10 situations. I'll begin with one uh, where we went, um, uh, this was my first time uh, in US and I saw a catalog, uh, nothing, um, this was in 1993 uh, and I had never seen a catalog where you, you could order things. And these were Christmas ornaments. Now you have to mind my context. I came from India, never had seen a Christmas tree, never had a Christmas tree, did not know what ornaments were. And the ornaments were a full page, uh, beautiful, handcrafted. And the description was eloquent. And so I spent $40 that I did not have, which was a lot considering $500 was my rent and my scholarship. The ornaments came and I'm imagining they go on a real tree. So I'm imagining, and then the ornament came in one tiny square box, the box that fits in palm of my hands. And so they were miniatures. Nowhere <laughs> they had written the word miniature there. And maybe it was <laughs> implicit and I was a fool to not understand this language. Maybe I was a true foreigner, uh, but I was devastated. And of course, this is, um, you know, no idea how to return things or understand anything about how business is done. But that, ex that experience did not teach me anything is what I'm trying to say. So with, <laughs> with that, I would love to welcome two of my prolific, incredibly celebrated neuroscientists and psychologists who have been rocking the field uh, and bringing information to us. So it's with great pleasure and honor, I would like to introduce our first guest, Dr. Daniel Simons, uh, mm -hmm. who is a professor of psychology at University of Illinois, where he heads the Visual Cognition Laboratory and his uh, has um, courtesy appointment in the Charles H. Uh, Sandage Department of Ad Advertising and yep. the Guys College of Business. Uh, mm -hmm. Dan received his BA from Carleton College and his PhD from Cornell University. His research explores the limits of awareness and memory and the reasons why we often are unaware of those limits and the implications of such limits for our personal and professional lives. And second, he is our return uh, guest uh, who has been on our podcast in, uh, in uh, 2019. Uh, and uh, a great pleasure to have you back. Uh, uh, Dr. Christopher Ch uh, Chabris is a professor uh, at the uh, Geisinger, a, a Pennsylvania healthcare system where he co-directs the Behavioral Insights team. His previ he previously taught at the Union College and Harvard University and is a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science. Chris received his PhD in psychology and 
uh, AB in computer science from Harvard. His research focuses on decision-making, attention, intelligence, and behavior genetics. His work has been published in leading journals, including Science, Nature, uh, PANAS, P-A-P-N-A-S. Um, it's an acronym. I hope I'm getting all these pronunciations right because I'm terrible at it. So forgive me. <laughs> and perception. Uh, Chris is also a chess master and a co-author of the bestseller, The Invisible Gorilla, which he co-wrote with Dan. And uh, we are having them both together because they are launching they're as we speak. So uh, their new book, uh, Nobody's Fool. And um, the full name of the book is Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What and what Can We Do About It. So welcome to the podcast. How are you two? Good. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, great. So, great, great to be back. Wonderful. So yes, since your invisible, um, you know, gorilla book and... Um, that also was a shocker to my system, but thanks for making me aware of my blind spots. <laughs> so uh, to begin with, um, I was wondering, since the title of your book is Nobody's Fool, uh, can you talk a little bit about the origin of this phrase, Nobody's Fool? Well, it, it, uh, you want to go, Chris? Sure. Well, uh, the title actually was... I believe suggested by the publisher, we had been working with a bunch of different ideas for titles and the phrase nobody's fool refers to, you know, a person who can't be tricked, who can't be conned, who can't be deceived. So unfortunately we can't promise that at the end of reading our book, you will never be conned or tricked or deceived again, but at least you'll be better at avoiding those kinds of things. Uh, it's a, uh, I think it's a good phrase to sort of sum up the the idea. Like you want to aim to be nobody's fool, but it's like a lifelong process of, you know, getting better at recognizing the signs and understanding how deception works and so on in order to get there. So it's it's an aspirational, it's an aspirational, uh, you know, title for our readers and for ourselves too. Yeah. I love that, Dan. What are you, do you want to add nope. something? No, I think that pretty much covers it. You know, there's obviously uh, other famous books with the same title. Um, there, there's a in the publishing industry, cop titles aren't copyrighted. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a famous book by Richard Russo by that name, which had a very different theme to it. Um, and there are much earlier works that, that are titled Nobody's Fool, including a few movies. Um, but, and as we talk about in the book, making reference to things that are familiar to people can sometimes make them find them more likable. So That's great. So, so be to begin with, I think the premise is, why we get taken in and what can we do about it? So can we pause and talk a little bit about our trusting nature? Um, I, I feel like by being a human being, um, it isn't trusting a, a moral quality. Isn't this something that aligns us to become more socially uh, appropriate or socially adept or uh, forces us or invites us to collaborate with the world? So, um, why do we trust? And then why some people break the trust? Well, I mean, one of the central themes in our book is that almost all forms of deception depend on our assumption that other people are being truthful, right? what we call a truth bias. That, um, And if we didn't have that, we just couldn't function in the world. We couldn't interact with other people. We just we couldn't work as a society because we have to rely on the fact that other people are generally being truthful, right? that we should trust what they have to say. And the problem comes in that sometimes we assume that people are telling the truth when they aren't, right? But the vast majority of the time, people are typically being honest with us. They're telling us what they think, what they what they believe, what they're going to do, and we should trust them, right? So we can't go through life constantly second-guessing everything everybody says and does. It would be unproductive. It would be counterproductive. Um, whereas if we rely on people to be truthful most of the time, then most of the time we're going to be fine. And the key for the key thing that we talk about throughout the book is recognizing when we should maybe ask a few more questions, when we should maybe be a little bit more critical. And we try and identify what are the signs that you might be in a situation where that should happen, right? Where you should be doubting the truth of what you're hearing and remaining uncertain a little bit longer. Um, so one interesting thing about that is I think that that this 
truth bias or trusting uh, uh, others as a default state, mental state, allows us to actually uh, propel our mutualized goals. Otherwise, we'll be full of uh, uh, cynicism and doubt and paranoid in a way, right? And that's mm-hmm. no way of conducting business. And I loved uh, one of the lines in your summary, you had said that, you know, I mean, yeah, we can really keep everybody on check and then we will kind of s- shrink our influence. Everything about the way we work through life will shrink. So then is it that people deceive um, or lie because, I mean, it's so easy to make, you know, benefit from somebody, right? So why why do we know enough about why people lie? Well, I have to say that our book is not really about why con artists and cheaters and liars do what they do, right? We sort of assume that those people are out there that you know, they're trying to, they're trying to trick us somehow. They're trying to deceive us. And we really explore why it is that we fall into it. Um, however, I think it is relevant to say that one of the reasons why they do it is because they can get away with it. And one of the reasons they can get away with it is because, you know, the design of our uh, cognitive system, starting with the truth bias, as Dan discussed, but then also, you know, some of the other cognitive habits we talk about in the book and some of the other sort of features of the informational environment that, that hook us, that make it, that draw us in, that make us pay attention and so on. You know, it's, it's turns out to be sort of, well, I don't want to say shockingly easy, but, you know, somewhat easy to take advantage of those things and create, you know, a, a pathway in um, to someone, you know, to taking advantage of, of someone. Um, yeah. We don't really get into sort of questions of, you know, sociopathy, mental illness, you know, the morality of cheating, you know, very much, except also to notice that, there are some signs that it's on the rise uh, in, in recent years, and, and that could be because technology makes it easier. There could be lots of reasons for that. Um, uh, we mostly try to focus on sort of like how it works and therefore, yeah. based on that understanding, what we can do about it. Yeah, just I'll add to that. The other, the other thing that we do sometimes comment on is the fact that people who do try and rip other people off, they tend to do it repeatedly. So if you look at their past (laughs) histories, people who are committing fraud and convicted of fraud often had prior convictions for for fraud. And people who, say, commit scientific misconduct, if you look back in their past, they probably did it before, right? So um, in that sense, you can see some consistency there. But as Chris said, we don't really focus in on the motivations of the people who are trying to cheat us. It's much more about what are the set of vulnerabilities that we have that makes it easy for them. And I love that. So let's begin with what do you have a favorite con or scam that you came across <laughs> while working on this? I mean, right now, Netflix and every platform is full of con artists and their stories and, and they're jaw-dropping and enticing and you can drool over, over it because they're so juicy too. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I mean, there are so many of them. Yeah. So good. I'm going to pick a very um, commonplace one that everybody has talked about, which is the, the Theranos um, story with Elizabeth Holmes and her uh, business partner, um, Sonny Balwani, who were both, you know, convicted of fraud in federal court, sentenced to jail. She's actually in jail now. But this all goes back, uh, you know, 15 years or so to when uh, Elizabeth Holmes founded this um, sort of biotech company that was going to create a, uh, according to her vision, going to create a device which revolutionized the uh blood testing, diagnostic testing industry by enabling you to just, you know, prick your finger, take out a tiny little amount of blood, something that barely even hurts, no needles in the arm and all that stuff, and stick it in a little machine that maybe the size of a toaster or, uh, you know, a small, um, you know, a small microwave and, you know, minutes later get, you know, diagnostic test results out that would tell you whether you have, you know, HIV infection, whether you're pregnant, you know, what your, what your uh, cholesterol is, you know, all manner of different tests, uh, Thousands of them at one point, I think they claim this device would be able to do. And, you know, it's one, you know, one thing that happened was they never built the device successfully. They never succeeded in building a device which lived up to these expectations. But that always happens all the time. You know, technology sometimes doesn't work out. The problem was that they claimed to have done it already and they claimed to have deployed it and they claimed to be, you know, offering that service to customers, you know, and uh, and to investors and to their board members and so on. So the sort of the fraud was in sort of saying that these devices existed and they could do all these amazing things when in fact what was happening in real life is they would sort of take a blood sample 
you know, with a finger prick, maybe add some uh, water to it or some other, you know, solution to sort of, uh, you know, make it more liquid and take it to some, you know, standard gigantic machine in a back room that took hours to, you know, to deliver the results. So there was actually sort of a, an aspect of theatrical deception to it, right? They would have this machine there and sort of pretend that it was doing things. It, it had a special mode where it would make all the noises without doing anything just to sort of convince people that it worked. But in reality, the whole operation was going on you know, almost literally behind the behind the curtain. I think that fraud is 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 interesting, you know, for a lot of reasons. But one of the one of which is, as we analyzed it, we found that it, uh, you know, Elizabeth Holmes took advantage of many of the different things that we talk about um, in the book, many of the different um, habits that we have and the weaknesses that we have. You know, I think, uh, and I have read everything possible and seen every documentary and heard every podcast on Elizabeth Holmes myself. <laughs> and one thing that struck me as you were saying, um, uh, too, that she had no background in science. So she actually did not know how much amount of blood you need to conduct any test. And that didn't deter her. Like to me, I wouldn't even come up with that fraud because I, I feel so handicapped that I need knowledge. And she had no Forms about it. That was very impressive. So um, that's a great place for us to start. I think in, I love the way you have di divided uh, uh, the book into two parts, habits and hooks. And uh, you talk about the cognitive shortcuts in, and thinking patterns that are designed uh, to optimize our um, uh, functioning, but that also can uh, become a handicap for us. So in this Theranos case, um, can you maybe correlate uh, some of the um, cognitive shortcuts that we engage in as a way to optimize our processing that Elizabeth, I don't know, she was that savvy to know how to deceive, but she once she got entangled, she continued to deceive really well. Chris, why don't you go ahead and continue with that case? Sure. So, um, uh, yeah, I think your, your question contains a very good point by itself, which is we, we don't say that all of these con artists and scammers you know, understand cognitive psychology really well, and they have a list of the things they're going to try to exploit and so on. It's it's more like guild knowledge or trade knowledge. You try a bunch of stuff over time, you see what works. And our approach was to kind of try to decode that and say, okay, let's come up with a framework that explains like what they're doing and why it works. We're not saying they know all these things in advance, but they sort of you know, have the exits. It's like magicians can be great magicians without ever taking a visual perception course in college, right? They learn how to do it, you know, from the trade, you know, and from practice and all that. So I don't know how she learned how to do these things. But one thing that um, I would say um, uh, they definitely took advantage of um, is uh, they stocked their board of directors with a lot of familiar figures. Um, it was a very unusual board of directors for a biotech medical technology company. There were no other CEOs of comparable companies on their board of directors. There were no venture capitalists who'd normally invest in that industry on their board of directors. Instead, Henry Kissinger was on their board of directors and George Schultz. Novices. Both, yeah, well, novices on biotech and blood testing, but, you know, geniuses on foreign relations and politics and so on, <laughs> right? So, but, but recognizable names, like sort of people you would think like, you know, everybody would recognize their names. You'd think like, these are great Americans. Like these are, you know, they must have good judgment, you know, and so on. So this was exploiting um, in, inadvertently perhaps um, the, the hook that we call familiarity. So things that are familiar to us tend to seem more legitimate, acceptable, um, uh, uh, you know, credible, right? So you have a bunch of well-known names on your board people might invest in, especially considering the kinds of investors they were going after. Again, not biotech savvy investors, but they were going after investors like, um, you know, publishing industry magnates and, you know, the offices of, you know, rich families, you know, who had to invest their money and so on, not necessarily experts in the sector. So they, uh, we, we talked separately to, um, to a, uh, a hedge fund manager you know, who, who told us something like um, the more retired generals you see on a board, you know, of directors, the more you should want to short the company's stock. That is, oh, bet wow. against it. you know, so retired <laughs> generals on a board of directors are sort of a sign that what what they're trying to do is they're trying to sort of impress you, you know, with prestige and, and, and respect and, and, you know, other qualities than expertise in this industry, in this business, in this scientific technology. Right. I think that was one of the you know, one of the clever things that they that they wound up doing. 
Excellent insight, Chris. I was wondering, Dan, what do you think about this uh, particular hook that was used without any expertise in how the hooks and habits can be exploited? Yeah, well, I mean, I think people do kind of know how to take advantage of the things that they find persuasive, right? They're, they, most of the people who are, you know, like like Holmes, are really good salespeople, right? And salespeople have a lot of experience at persuading people, and you know, there's there's a long history of persuasion techniques that. They just kind of, whether they know them and study them, probably not, but they fall into them because they're good at what they do. Um, another another uh, habit that uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos took advantage of is focus, right? So Absolutely. When, they, when they did those demonstrations for, you know, industry executives or possible donors, they had them focusing on just what they were seeing. Um, they're, they're seeing them take a blood sample. They're seeing them stick it into a machine. It makes beeping and flashing noises. Then they go on a tour of the facility or go to lunch. And while they're doing that, they're not being shown all of the other information, right? People assume that what they're seeing is all there is. And they don't think to ask, hey, is that the machine right there that's actually doing this analysis? And if they'd asked that, they'd realize, no, it's actually not. Um, but people don't think to ask about what they're not being shown, right? So that habit of focusing in on something and not thinking about the information that you might not have is is a pervasive and mostly really effective habit, right? It's really efficient to focus on what you've got and not worry too much about the things you're missing. But when there's somebody who's set up a, a fraud or a scam like this, they take advantage of that. You know, talking about focus, I was just, um, uh, yesterday um, I was at an event and it was a little surprise party or celebratory party. And uh, we, my husband and I walked in, uh, this was a lunch and didn't know what the surprise was. So it turned out my girlfriend's uh, daughter who got married a year and a half ago is pregnant and they were celebrating that. It was great. And so they began to tell me the story that uh, uh, the young woman who's pregnant, her brother was coming from Florida. So uh, she and her husband went to the airport to pick him up and they had prepared a special sign and um in uh, you know it had written let's call him uh, you know uh, maybe a ravi and he says welcome ravi to atlanta and and it in next to ravi it says ravi uncle so both the husband and wife were standing at the airport with the sign and he's like hey oh i'm so excited to that you came i mean he, he didn't think much about it because instead of uber it's like my sister came they got into the car and the husband and wife were a little puzzled because he had no reaction. So they again flashed the sign and say, hey. And he's like, yeah, I mean, thanks. And then finally they got so sick of it. And they say, read the sign. And then he read the sign. And then it says, oh, uncle, am I going to be an uncle? Then it dawned on him. He glazed over the sign because he thought it's the typical sign of welcome home, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And so that's a great illustration of focus. Like we think we are very focused. He chose to see whatever he wanted to see, which is his name and welcome sign. He was not even contextually questioning, like, why would my sister who picks me up every time is coming with a sign? You know what I mean? So, yeah. so that's the blind spot in attention <laughs> that you talk a lot about. So I'm wondering if you could take a moment to maybe uh, share some studies that have really captivated this nuance that we not only are taken by the information that's present in our visual processing field or our processing field, but we also kind of get locked into not asking any question about what's missing. Let me take that on a tangent for just a second because I think yes. it's a really interesting uh, case. One thing it reveals is a theory of mind issue, right? Yes. That um, you're, the people who have the sign are thinking, oh, well, this is so obvious. I, they he couldn't possibly miss this in the sign. Yes. And a lot of fraud works that way, right? We, we see somebody who fell for a fraud and we think, oh, yeah, that's so obvious. I never would have fallen for that. When in reality, it's, it's only obvious when you know it's there, when you know to look for yes. it, when you know what's already happened. But in the moment, you don't necessarily think about those things. You're focused on what's right in front of you. And that's part of the danger here, right? That the reason we tend to think, oh, only gullible people get scammed is that we, when we hear about these stories, and as you were saying, they're all over Netflix and documentaries, and there are all of these great podcasts and stories about fraud and scams. And when we're watching it from the outside after it's happened, it all seems kind of obvious. And it's like, oh yeah, how did they fall for that? It was just right there in front of them. They just, you know, it, they just missed it. But in the moment, it's much harder to do that because we don't really think about all of the information that's right there. 
So it leads to this mistaken belief that you know people who fall for frauds are gullible, when in reality, we can all fall for them if we're the ones who are targeted in that in that moment. I think that's a really critical example of why this sort of focus matters. We're just not thinking about the information we have in the moment. We, we really are focused on what's right in front of us. And some of our own studies kind of have looked at this sort of metacognitive belief, right? So the invisible gorilla study, right, is one yeah. of those cases where, you know, if people are counting passes and they're focusing on that intently, they don't, a lot of people don't notice a person in a gorilla suit walking through a scene. Um, and when you ask them, they say, I missed what? Right? They don't <laughs> believe you. But a critical thing to think about is, what if we never ask them? So we show them the video. They don't see the gorilla. They don't comment on it. We never ask them about the gorilla. They'll continue to go through life assuming, of course, they would see a person in a gorilla suit thumping its chest at the camera, right? Because we're aware of all of those times we've noticed things. We're not aware of all the times we didn't notice something. So unless it gets called to your attention, you don't think about what you missed. Yeah, and the other experiment that you have done with uh, uh, or the there's a staged fight that's going on and you're <laughs> running on a campus following somebody uh, uh, and and you miss the fight, like fight, like how would you miss the fight? And, and, and that also, I mean, so much of our detection or our law or our, our practices are dependent on people making good judgments based on being very aware and alert and attentive. And uh, we're barely getting through life. I mean, I don't know how we are showing up at work <laughs> or in the Zoom right now on this river, Riverside platform. <laughs> One reason we did that study where we actually had people run past a staged fight and see whether they noticed it was because uh, there was a, a jury trial where a police officer was convicted essentially, uh, you know, for lying when he said he didn't notice some cops beating up uh, you know, beating yes, up somebody. I remember that. Yes. And so we were trying to sort of replicate those conditions as much as we could in a laboratory experiment, but also sort of, you know, push the envelope of how big an event, you know, can we show in a scientific experiment people cannot notice. The original experiments in this phenomena had like little dots flashing in the corners of screens and so on. Then we have, you know, people walking through scenes and gorilla costumes and so on, but three people fighting, you know, and not, well, simulating fighting, of course, in the experiment, we didn't have anyone actually get injured, you know, and so on. Um, it really shows, I think that, you know, there's a surprising gap between the, you know, amount of stuff we can miss, and what we believe we couldn't miss, right. And that's sort of gets back to Dan's comment about sort of like the retrospective, you know, what, what people think in retrospect here, you know, you, you, you don't realize it's sort of like at all the time people made a decision, they had lots of options. There was lots of things they were focusing on and not noticing. But then when you see how it all ended, right, you can only see one pathway back, you know, what actually happened. And you think, oh, well, that's ridiculous how they would possibly fall for that. It's kind of like a form of um, outcome bias where like the way the, the way the story ends sort of makes everything that happened in it, you know, uh, more, um, more prominent, right? You don't, you don't anymore think about the things that could have been done or weren't done or weren't, you know, considered and so on. That, that's something that magicians use all the time, right? That um, they set you up to think about one possible mechanism for their magical effects, right? And once you've locked onto that, you have no chance of figuring out what the actual method was, right? <laughs> They've locked you into one interpretation, one sequence of events, and it's really hard in real time to think about what are all of the different paths they could be using right now to get to the same end state. We just don't do that. We take what they claim to have shown us as the path, right? And it's it's a core to a lot of magic effects, right? Is, is to misdirect people by getting them to think about one explanation when it's not the right explanation. And I also see that my husband and I are greatest fans of magic and uh, particularly he's far more than I am. And, and it's so interesting because we kind of make the whole magic watching meta process, which is so annoying because you're not in, not only not enjoying the magic, but you're also kind of not figuring it out. So it's the worst experience. And, <laughs> okay. and one time we were in Boston and we went to see David Copperfield and we were so certain we're going to figure this out. I mean, and he was on the stage and I don't know if you've seen this particular act where there's like a wind blowing and there's a windmill and there's a curtain and and he's standing right next to us like literally next to us and we are and I'm like he uh, so my uh, my husband and I are whispering like where he could be and he's standing right next to so 
it is very clear to me that I am not only like, yeah, I, I, I walk into setups really well is what I've concluded yeah. about myself. <laughs> I, I've heard, uh, I've heard some magicians say that, you know, people who are kind of skeptical, critical thinkers, like academic types are among the easiest to fool because they will almost, unless they've got magical training, they're going to lock in on one possible method that they think they figured out. And once you've done that, you're ignoring everything else, right? You're so you you focused, and that means you have you have no chance of finding out how they did it because you probably by the time you figure out what you think they've done, it's already done. Right? Yeah, it's it's too late, right? Yeah, I'm feeling very sad right now about myself. It's really, it's really hard, I think, because you really you know I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit defensive on this one and say that I've gone to a couple of mentalism shows and I think I have been able to figure out some of what's going on, but. But if I reflect back on this, well, I've read a book on mentalism. I've been talking to people about mentalism for years and so on. And sort of, I think this maybe widens my field of vision a little bit. And I can think, oh, well, like when the mentalists pretend to have like figured out obscure facts about people just by like looking at them and so on, what they probably really did was look it up online beforehand and knew that those people were in those seats or somehow they were going to you know, get them to volunteer and, and so on. And I don't know if this is right in any particular case, but there's certainly been cases where you know, it turned out that mentalists were definitely using social media, you know, before the show to find out <laughs> things about people in the audience, yeah. right? So we know that that's one of the, you know, one of the tricks they use. But, but, but to, you know, to, to go in without knowing anything about magic, right, you know, without having studied it, and then figure you're going to figure it out. I think as you know, Dan, Dan knows more than I do about this, but I think they're ready for that one. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. the people who think they're just going to figure it out sitting there in the audience, right? That's the bread and butter of the audience. Yeah. Right? Well, and, yes. and even even for professional magicians, right? And professional magicians can fool each other because they know a lot of different ways of producing the same effect, but they don't necessarily know which one you're using and how you've set it up. So shows like Penn and Teller Fool Us are entirely based on the show. idea that, you know, yeah. and they know every method that people are trying to use for the most part, right? So they should have guesses, but sometimes they still are not able to figure out which one was used because of how it was set up. Right. So, you know, even even as a professional magician, you, you know, which I'm not, you can enjoy a magic show, even if you think you understand how you're doing it, because the odds are good. If they're good, they're going to fool you. And, you know, the mechanism of um, being taken in is so co psychologically complicated. I feel you have a great quote. You say all of us are capable of being fooled, probably in more ways than we realized and more often than we are willing to admit. So to me, the other inbuilt problem there is how do you tell somebody you were taken in? Because that's so embarrassing. So not only the people who fool you make you, I mean, take whatever resources from you, but they also strip you of your dignity. And then I think you can't admit that in public. And fraud is probably massively underreported because of that, you know, especially, especially things like, say, the Nigerian email scam. People who fall for that in hindsight realize how, how much they missed. Um, and are embarrassed. So I, a lot of fraud probably goes unreported because of that, that embarrassment of having fallen for something. I was just going to add there, there, um, there's a lot of poignant stories about victims of financial scams. For example, Bernie Madoff, um, many people were extremely embarrassed. Uh, it, it, it sort of ruined their lives in two ways, right? One, they lost all their money, or at least it took them a long time to get yeah. some of it back out of the bankruptcy process after Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme went, went, you know, went bust. But then also they had to live with the knowledge that they themselves had been victimized in this way. And also with the knowledge that other people knew that they had been victimized because that was that was a public process. Right. You had to go public in a way in order to, to get your money back. And I, I think it's, it's true. There's an enormous stigma about this. And I'm not saying everybody should be happy about getting, getting fooled, but it's you know, there are a lot of scammers out there and there are a lot of ways to get fooled. And, uh, you know. You should you should read our book and also realize that you know there's still scams that might be waiting for you. You know, even so, you'll you'll have a better shot. At, you know, at not uh, at not getting taken in, hopefully. But there there are so many different you know possibilities. You know, I mean, this is sorry a gross comparison, but uh, you know the the research on uh, sociopaths and and psychopaths, like there, uh, I guess I don't know if this is accurate, but close to two hundred. Uh, serial killers that are out there. And so your book kind of reminded me like there are at least 200, you know, serial sociopaths who are taking advantage of people and engaged in active fraud as we are recording this. 
And uh, it's kind of discouraging. But also, I think uh, what was really, um, I, I love your compassionate bend on it because you're saying, uh, you know, have some self-compassion that this is not your fault. But at the same time, there's sometimes you can be vigilant and sometimes you're not, it's okay. Like, and I, I'm, I'm saying that very broadly, but yes. <laughs> so let me ask you the next question here that, um, you know, so, I mean, how many more reminders do we need? How many fabulous films and, you know, books and stories and <laughs> reports do we need to really know that scammers are at work? So they continue to do a fabulous job and we continue to be pleasantly victimized. So why haven't we learned to avoid them? <laughs> I think one of the key things is that a lot of those stories, they are really engaging stories. And, and most of the ones that we hear about that are, you know, the focus of documentaries or podcasts are sort of more grand scams, right? Things that are done at scale or require a lot of sophistication. Um, and I think we don't learn from them because they're all great storytelling and we can view them sort of from the outside, watching other people get scammed. And they're not focused on how it is that the individuals who are victimized, what were their thought processes? What were their, um, what were their default assumptions leading up to them being scammed? Instead, we're kind of getting the idea of this, you know, really clever con artist who manages to fool everybody. Right. And um, those are, it's great. It's great storytelling, right? You've got victims, you've got, you know, you've got this amazing, brilliant person who's tweeting, you know, tricking everybody. You've got, you know, the law trying to catch up to them. I mean, it, it's great narrative. Um, and there've been stories of that going back, you know, as long as scams have existed, which is pretty much as long as people have. <laughs> um, but we don't seem to learn from them, I think, because they don't really focus on what it is that we need to pay attention to in order to avoid getting scammed. So they continue to be great stories because they're great stories, but that's not necessarily what gives us the lessons we need in order to recognize them. That said, watching a whole bunch of these, you do start to notice some similarities across them, and you might start to recognize that there are things you shouldn't do, right? So, for example, if you've listened to podcasts or movies about calling uh, uh, call center scams, where they'll call people up and tell them, hey, your immigration status is in danger. You need to send us cash right away. Go to Walgreens and get a cash card and read us the number. Um, those sort of high-pressure scams. If you listen to that sort of thing enough, you'll realize no official organization will ever ask you to go buy a prepaid cash card and read off a number. It's always a scam, right? <laughs> um, so you can learn specific cases, like what not to do in a specific case by listening to these. But you don't necessarily generalize beyond that to novel variants of them. Right? And that's where I think it helps to really focus in on the cognition that's underlying being victimized. I'll give you a quick story. So my... Um, uh, uh, somebody who works for me uh, texted me out of the blue on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I'm at Walmart. How many cards do you need? Uh, should it be $50 or $100? And I'm like, whoa. I said, I picked up the phone and called and I said, what are you doing? Why are you at Walmart? She said, didn't you text me that you need gift cards? Uh, I said, no. But I said, you're at Walmart? Like, the next step was to never pick up the phone if you got a text from me. That sounds very aberrant. We don't give cards to anybody in our my business. So, so anyways, I think that kind of captures this everyday gullibility. Yeah. Somebody like says, your boss called and I'm at the I'm at Walmart now. Like I'm going yep. to buy. <laughs> it's it's a really common scam, right? And and it's um there there's the sort of positive case of it, right? Where it's like, hey, hey we need to get gift cards for people. So go buy them for me. Versus the, you know, the horrific ones where it's, you know, you're going to jail unless you send us money immediately, right? Um, but they all have that same structure. And so know, what is, anytime what are you they see that, you should know here? it's a scam. Yeah. So what, what are the cognitive processes, for example, the person who worked for me failed or kind of got captivated by? One sounds well, like focus, doing multitasking and just not investigating, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. One, one thing that like makes the truth bias, like really, you know, uh, you know, a, a dominant, you know, sort of mode of thinking is not having much time or attention or, you know, um, being distracted or whatever, right? So one one theory of truth bias goes that we accept whatever we're told, and it takes mm. extra effort, more thinking, a little bit of time to sort of relabel it as questionable or false or of unknown provenance or anything other than true, um, right. you know, so that's one thing. Um, 
obviously there's familiarity is being used. Like often people yep. will, you know, try to tap into sort of some relationship that already exists, which is what happened here, right? Like there's some other scammer somewhere who's basically getting the relationship between you and your colleague, you know, to be their thing. A lot of times it's family relationships that are used and some of the, you know, the, yeah. the worst scams in the case of Bernie Madoff, it was, um, uh, there, it was sort of, uh, you know, uh, he was a familiar figure. Um, he was trusted, he was involved with lots of Jewish organizations and philanthropies. There was a lot of sort of familiarity involved there. It's all the same, you know, all the same things, same come ingredients. Up, you know, over, yeah. you know, over and over again um, uh, in these, you know, in, in these things. And I'll, I mean, I suppose also like, um, uh, you know, there's one thing we should definitely consider, which um, is really hard to notice sometimes, which is that, you know, you don't know how many people they tried this scam on before they got to your employee, right? So it's not like the first time they tried it, like, oh, we got this, this works every time we try it. They might have sent out a hundred or more, text, a thousand yeah. text yep. messages like that until they finally found someone who started playing along. And then they're going to try to milk that one for as many gift cards as they possibly can over time. That's how all these selection yep. scams often work is they get one person on the hook and then they try to get as much money as they can out of them over and over and over again. Yeah, just, and, you know, my, my mother had exactly the same scam happen to her a week ago, right? That um, a, person really her, a person in her building sent her an email saying, hey, you know, I'm sick. Would you be willing to go get me a gift card that I can give to my kid? Right. And that happened to be somebody she knew in the building. Right. Um, probably that person's email was corrupted or hacked and they sent it to every single person in their email directory. And they just happened to catch my mom who knew them. Right. Wow. And if you send it to everybody's email directory, they, they're going to find people they know. So they might have sent out a thousand emails just to kind of hook anyone. Um, my mom, fortunately, thought that sounded a little weird and called the person. But um not not before trying to reply to the email and getting no response. So wow. it, it's easy to fall for these sorts of things. Is also, there, there... she very kindly read our book already and suggested yeah. <laughs> many helpful edits. So she was armed with the necessary yep. defenses. She was a little skeptical going in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well, another uh, habit that you talk about, uh, this cognitive and uh, shortcut, is uh, prediction. Can you speak a little bit about uh, how that works uh, and how that makes us victims of our own life experiences? Sure. So, I mean, you can think about, you know, prediction is a lot like thinking about what our base rate of experiences are. You know, hmm. what we're expecting to have happen is kind of going to be likely similar to the things that have happened in the past. So we kind of have anticipation of what we're going to run into, right? That, that's just kind of a, a basic idea that, you know, you, you kind of make predictions about what's going to happen and you think about what's going to happen and you maybe have a favored outcome, but we don't tend to question right, whether that prediction was good in the first place. We don't, and when somebody hands us a result that looks really appealing, we don't think, okay, was this something I predicted? And if it was, maybe I should be more skeptical because what a scammer is going to do is give you exactly what you are hoping for, exactly what you desire. And if it's exactly what you desire, you should be questioning of it. So we, we give an example of journalists who you know, are fed a document that just perfectly matches exactly what they would hope to have seen. This was going back to the George uh, um, George Bush uh, era when CBS was reporting about these documents about what George W. Bush had not done or not done during his military service, right? So there were lots of speculation about questionable, you know, drug behavior and not fulfilling his responsibilities, those sorts of things. And somebody gave them the document that perfectly fit their narrative, what they hoped for. So they ran with it and it turns out to have been a fake, right? So it was exactly what they predicted. And when, they, when somebody comes to you with exactly what you were predicting or exactly what you were hoping for, that's probably when you should be most suspicious as opposed to least suspicious. It, it brings uh, to mind though, that you're really talking about higher order thinking. Like the habit of questioning is something you can develop and learn as a critical thinker. And I feel not many people are critical thinkers. I'm sorry. And and I I don't mean in a mean way, but I think people, one of the ways that, you know, we educate people to kind of come, come to a place where you rely on information being correct, truthful. It's a way to gain knowledge. And if you question, you look like an outsider. You know? but it, this is something that you should be questioning for yourself, right? So, um, and everybody makes this mistake. Scientists who are trained to try and evaluate critically. Think about it. If you 
uh, if you look at your data and you find that the result looks really weird, right? You're going to double check and make sure everything was coded correctly. Yes. What if the result came out exactly as you predicted? Would you be as likely to double check? Would you find those coding mistakes that you'd made if it was matching what you were hoping for? Right. And that sort of, and generally you wouldn't, right? You wouldn't be as careful in scrutinizing something that you agreed with than something you disagreed with. And that's that's just a general tendency. We do that most of the time, right? And most of the time our predictions kind of match up and we want to find things that look like what we want to find out. We want to kind of confirm our beliefs. So it's only in those cases where somebody might be taking advantage of it or when we might be fooling ourselves that you really do want to kind of get into a mindset where you think more critically, right? And that's hard, right? But I think the key is noticing when you're in one of those situations. So as somebody who does a lot of data analysis, I know that I'm going to tend to check much more carefully if something doesn't look right. right? And mm. most of the time, that's a valid reason to check. But Flip ideally, it. we should have something built into our process so that we check all the time and not just when it's, you know, looks weird. You know, I have a concept that when when I work with executive function training is it's called spot checking. That means you pick five spots that are random in your own experience where you yeah. know if there's something aberrant that will stick out, but there's no aberrant, then you can actually question why there's yeah. no aberrant because aberrant is the norm, mm -hmm. at least the way I see it. And and funny thing, you mentioned this because last week, Evie and I, uh, who's a producer, who's on the call, we were in a meeting and uh, we were looking at a graph and the data had shifted um, so from this level to next level and then the third level. And there was a huge jump. Uh, and I said, I was saying in the meeting, I've never seen this kind of jump. And what is what an incredible progress, but I've never seen it. I kept saying, I've never seen it. And then uh, uh, slowly, Evie kind of came and said, I think I juxtaposed the data. <laughs> it's not supposed to be that way. I was so pleasantly taken, enamored by progress, that if I had not kept saying that again and again, that registered, um, we would have gone along reporting something erroneous because yeah, we are exactly. so mesmerized. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. This happens This happens all the time. I, I've been in, I mean, I'm sure we've all been in many meetings where a pleasant looking, you know, Outcome, graph yeah. is shown and almost nobody questions it. And in fact, you feel bad. You know, you feel a bit antisocial if you're the one guy who says, wait a minute, like that's what, what could possibly explain that aside from we're doing great, you know, much greater than we thought we were doing or something like that. I mean, it can go the other direction, too. Like if there's a if something starts going badly, people might then, you know, start to think more critically, like, well, wait a minute, is that the data real? Like, did, was that analyzed correctly and so <laughs> yes. on? But it's the satisfaction of the expectations or the prediction or, you know, the outcome that we hope to see that sort of disarms, you know, the critical thinking. So I would put a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a gloss on what, what you said earlier. Um, it's not like there are some critical thinkers and everybody else is not a critical thinker. I think everybody can think critically. The question is, do they apply it, you know, mm. to a random sampling of, of situations or do they only apply it to when their own hopes and expectations are not met? There's some very nice scientific experiments showing that, for example, um, you know, uh, people on the political right you know, will question data that suggests that gun control reduces crime, but they won't, uh, sorry, will question data that suggests that gun control reduces crime, um, uh, but but won't question data that suggests that uh, it increases crime, right? Or a climate yes. change or, you know, many other examples of this where, right. um, and, and it reverses. It's, it's not like the people on the left are always thinking critically. It reverses depending on whether the data, you know, supports yeah. your outcome. And the, the, the trick is to become, you know, a critical thinker who's not governed as much by by that. But you have the potential within you to think critically. People who are anti-vaccine will very critically, you know, pull apart pro-vaccine studies. You know, they might be wrong, but they will apply a lot yes. of critical thinking to it. It's not like they can never think critically. They can do it when they don't like, you know, when they don't like the uh, the outcome. And, you know, I have a theory about this that I think uh, I've had Tim Pitchell who studies procrastination and he says, all pain management, all time management is pain management. So if you think about this, this issue that we are talking about is really when, you know, truth hurts, as they say. So when you see something that's not favorable, it leads to some discomfort. And we basically are wanting to avoid the discomfort. 
whether it's not mm. in your favor or it, or it's a um, you know information. So I mean, Bernie Madoff. There was a wonderful documentary which I watched again in preparation for this. But there was a, a guy in Europe who was investing money, and he says I had never come across anybody who instructed their client to never talk about this investment opportunity. He says that was anti-investment. He says, if you are the person who's making tons of money, you want tons of money coming your way. And he says that itself to me. And when I asked that, everybody will kind of poo-pooed him, you know? <laughs> so, so I think the, the discomfort of data shows amazing progress. Well, it's great. That means, yay. But what if it's not true? And that pain is what we need to come to manage. So it sounds like there's a little bit of greed associated with the joy or that, that we are also not coming to terms with, maybe? <laughs> I mean, greater or kind of reinforcement of our beliefs, right? I'm, I'm not yes, sure. It's, true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's people like having what they think confirmed, right? And you know, if if the things you're seeing are confirming that, you don't think to question them, right? And that, that's the that's the real challenge here, right? Um, there are interesting cases, and in all of these scams, right? There are people who didn't fall for them, and the question that's interesting is what was different about them? What were they doing differently than the people who did fall for them? So the example you just gave is somebody saying, wait a second, what investment manager who's running a giant fund wouldn't want to advertise it and try and get more investment, right? Um, you know, in the, in the same way that, um, you know, people might ask, well, why, why aren't you giving me all of the, you know, details of these trades, right? Um, <laughs> Or you're giving all the details of these trades, but you're not, you know, why, why is why is there no variation in your your results, right? So th there are lots of these cases where people didn't fall for it. So I, I think my favorite recent one is um, Taylor Swift is the only person not to <laughs> who was asked to endorse, um, you know, cryptocurrency, big cryptocurrency, and she said, "Wait, isn't this just like an unregulated security?" And nobody else was asking that, right? <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, kudos to her for kind of going and saying, this doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, there's one of the one of the um, habits we talk about in the book is uh, that Dan's referring to is, is what we call efficiency, right? So we like to make decisions quickly. We don't like to think too much. You know, we're busy. And slowing down and asking questions, sometimes out loud, but even just of yourself, you know, or of the data in front of you or something like that you know, is really a, a critical step. And, you know, Taylor Swift asked the right question and didn't get caught up in this, you know, one of these whole crypto scams, which, by the way, she could have been on the hook for. Like, people who have endorsed cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrency scams have themselves been sued or prosecuted, you know, for right. uh, for basically promoting, illegally promoting securities, right? But you, you can't just go out and, you know, promote, you know, illegal investments or, or you know, bogus investments. Uh, some of the people literally did ask Bernie Madoff questions, and when he wouldn't answer them, they didn't invest. Others maybe just asked the question more generally and, and realized yeah. that you know just by asking the question, sometimes you can realize that something's wrong, right? If you just yeah. surface the question, you yeah. know, thinking that you need to ask a question, just asking yourself, yeah. is that really true? It is often yeah. enough to kind of get you thinking about whether it makes sense. I mean, if you see something shared on social media and it seems to be perfectly in, in keeping with what you hoped to see, just asking yourself, is that really true? And thinking about it for a minute, sometimes we'll realize, no, that, that can't be right. right. So you have a lot of uh, tricks and suggestions. So as we think about, there are a few, I, I wrote down some big ideas that spoke to me um, and I wanted to just review. And I'm sure you have some ideas that you want the listeners or readers to uh, figure out. But one thing you talked, which kind of we touched upon was blunder check. Uh, uh, am I making a simple mistake? Uh, can you tell us a little bit how we can apply that to our everyday life? Well, I, I'll tell you the analogy, right? The, the analogy comes from chess and probably other games where... I saw you, um, Chris, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. So the, you know, yeah. often, um, you know, when, when you're playing a serious chess game, you know, in a tournament, it's like a, a three, four hour long event. You do a lot of thinking each move. Maybe you think four minutes for a move or something like that. And you can get so caught up in what you were thinking that, you might, you know, have actually forgotten to consider some possibility for your opponent or something like that. So many coaches, especially tell uh, children, but any chess player, you know, before you actually touch a piece and move it, like before you make a real decision, you know, that affects the future, you know, consider whether, you know, there are any obvious flaws in what you're doing that you haven't noticed before. And we think that applies more widely to um, lots of decisions. It's not always obvious how to find those flaws. You need to know something about what you're doing. 
Um, one way that people try to sort of um, formalize this process often is by using checklists. So, you know, the checklists that pilots like go through before they fly the plane is in a way of prevent, it's a way of preventing blunders in some sense, right? Are the, you know, are all these switches where they're supposed to be? Have I checked these things and so on? Like missing any of those things would be like making a blunder in a chess game, right? Like overlooking something obvious, right? So checklists, you know, can of course help, but you need to know like what it is you're doing in order to have the right checklist, you know, for that. But it's always good to think of, keep in mind that despite all your efforts, you might have missed something simple. And, you know, can I say something about the, that the fact that you brought the reference to uh, chess, uh, chess by default is a very critical thinking game. And also it requires a lot of working memory to do something called hypothesizing. That means if I do this, then this will happen. But what if mm-hmm. I do this? And it requires you to hold on to all these multiple open-endedness in your working memory. And many people struggle with chess. They cannot play the game and I uh, no knock at them, but I'm just saying this habit that you're talking about is a very beautifully cultivated through chess playing as a very deliberate effort to improve critical thinking skills. So um, I do think that some people just don't have that experience or exposure or practice to that kind of thought process. Do you agree with that, or do you think there are some substitutes for that? Well, that, that's where I that's where that's where I would get the idea. But there's plenty of other games besides chess that you can get the same idea from. Probably people don't blunder check enough in any other game they're playing, right? Like we, no, you they know, don't. We, yeah, you know, so it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be chess. I, I agree with you. Chess is chess is especially focused on the idea that I, I think we sort of talked about but earlier that there are sort of like multiple paths into the possibilities, future. Possibilities, yeah. And you need to look at them. If you just look at what happened at the end of a game, it can seem obvious why somebody lost. But there were so many choices they had to make, and so many different ways their opponent could have played. That's a good way of thinking in general, but I don't think we need to worry about all that complexity in order to, you know, reduce our chances a little mm. bit of getting scammed. Um, it's yes. sort of a, you know, it's, it's a, it is kind of like an executive function thing. It's like an inhibition thing, like, you know, stop, you know, stop, you know, before, you know, before deciding yeah. and, and, and check, you know, and, and check a little bit. Well, an important point here, right, is that as you were saying, chess, chess requires a lot of executive control, working memory sorts of processes. But you still need to do a blunder check, even if you're really, really good at chess, right? You're, you're still <laughs> likely to miss something obvious, right? So it's not it's not something that is just for people who are having trouble with those sorts of things. This is something that applies to everybody to think about cases when you might have just missed something obvious. And it might be something obvious that you need to look for right then. I love that. And I was going to mention two more before we end. The second one was a pre-mortem. I thought that was also really a wonderful strategy. Can you walk us through, Dan? Uh, how sure. do we do that? I mean, the idea is if if things were going to go off the rails, right, uh, before you actually do something, before you actually engage in thinking about, okay, if this were going to go bad, how might it go bad? You know, what what might go wrong? And it's a little like thinking like a scammer, right? So if somebody were going to scam me, what would they do? How would they take advantage of me? How would they try and trick me? And just thinking about that a little bit in advance can often help you head off cases where you might be, you know, might be fooled, right? So, um that's a really important thing to do for any sort of big decision that you're making. Okay, if if this were going to go terribly wrong, you know, catastrophize a little. I mean, keep it under control, but catastrophize a little. <laughs> Think about what's the worst possible thing that could happen here. How bad is that? Right? And what could I do to make sure that doesn't happen? Right? And anticipating that a little bit, you know, makes you think about it. So if let's say you get that gift card email, right? You think about, okay, should I go buy gift cards? Well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, worst thing could happen is that it's a scam, right? It's it's a fake. Um, in which case, you know, what's the solution? Well, I can I can head off that fake, you know, that worst catastrophe by just calling the person who asked me to buy these things before doing it. I mean, that's not a big stakes decision, but it could be. Hmm. Um, but yeah, Chris, you want to add to even worse? I mean, there's even even worse case in that, which is it could be some form of identity theft where. It's not, you know, it could wind up in some kind of situation where you give more information to them, right? And then, you know, even worse things happen than just we buy a few hundred dollars of gift cards, which is a lot of money, but still, like, it's a limited limited impact, right? But identity theft can have a, you know, sort of open-ended impact some, sometimes, depending on, you know, how soon you catch it and, and so on. And the pre-mortem idea, by the way, comes from um, uh, Gary Klein and, and Danny Kahneman yes. has also yeah. written about it. I don't want to pretend that we're... You don't want right. to pretend that we invented it, but I, I think it's it's very underutilized. It, it really should be utilized more. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one way to do it is like, actually, imagine yourself in the future that you actually did all this stuff, you know, and then you've, you know, you, you've lost all your money. Well, how could that have happened? 
right? Yeah. Um, you know, and then that might tell you like, what are the th- some of the things I should, you know, I shouldn't be doing here? Yeah. How could I get from where I am to the bad outcome? And what are the steps yeah. that would have led to that? Yeah. And again, I think to me, uh, that sounds again, requires a little bit emotional courage to withstand the possibilities of being unfavorable, unsavory outcomes, yep. but just simply engaging that hypothetical uh, analysis synthesis can go long ways. Um, mm-hmm. So last one that I really thought was wonderful way to n- end this conversation, and I'm sure there's so many amazing <laughs> ideas, so sorry to condense them into just a few, but uh, not to swel- sweat the small stuff. That was your advice because it's being receptive to tiny scams. It's like getting paper cut <laughs> is what I saw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're not going to be able to prevent everything, every scam. You're not going to notice many of them, but you know, it, if you, let's say you get ripped off at the grocery store because the price on the shelf is slightly different from what rings up on the receipt. If you can afford that loss, it's probably not worth your time to check every single price against every single value on the receipt to make sure it's perfect. Because yeah, maybe the errors will be systematic. Maybe they'll add up and benefit the store as opposed to you, or maybe they're random, but they're probably not huge, right? Those sorts of errors probably aren't huge errors. So it's probably not worth most people's time to spend time worrying about that. Whereas if you're buying, if if you have the money and interest to buy fine art, it's probably worth all of your time to really thoroughly investigate what you're buying. Because the returns to a scammer, if they get you to buy a faked painting, are gigantic. And the costs to you are gigantic. So you want to actually think about what's, what's the cost here versus what's the opportunity, right? If, if the risk to me is minimal, do I really benefit from being skeptical all the time? Right? If the risk to me is huge, yeah, you probably do. It's a nice way to maintain some sanity or some sense of, yeah. you know, humanity in ourselves. Like we cannot be these superhumans who are preventing everything. <laughs> and you wouldn't want to be, right? I mean, what a horrible way to go through life, constantly second guessing everybody you interact with and all... Most of the time, we're not getting scammed, right? Most of the time, people are honest brokers. So you want to treat the world that way. Um, it's just that when you're at big risk, you want to pay attention to that. Well, well thank you for being so wonderfully honest about uh, these difficult topics and, and really amazing book. Uh, listeners, this is launching just um, last, I mean, it launched yesterday. So get your copy. We'll be adding a link at the end of the, in our show notes, definitely. So before I let you both go, I have two questions. One, have you been scammed and, and are you willing to share a personal story (laughs) and, and your favorite recommendation in addition to your two books? Um, there are some examples in the, in the book of ways that we were, uh, of ways that we were scammed. Um, there's one story we tell where, uh, and maybe this will cover both of, you know, both me and Dan, since the same thing happened to both of us, uh, (laughs) a a guy emailed us separately, totally separately, not, not, uh, not together or anything like that, wanting to engage in research project with us. And there were two different research projects and, uh, you know, there were some discussions and, and so on were had and some emails were exchanged, but in neither case did it actually go anywhere. Um, I talked on the phone with him a couple of times, I think. Same yeah. guy. That yeah, was surprising he, to me. Like, yeah. contacted both of you. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think uh, well, it was a guy who was in, he wasn't some random person from nowhere. He was a guy who was sort of somewhat in our field. He was involved in in cognitive science, you know, in cognitive yeah. psychology generally. He, he kind of inserted not, himself into the field. I'm not sure he yeah. actually had done anything in it. Yeah, But he wasn't like some... Yeah. you know, like right. who just was trying to prey on academics or whatever. Like he, well, okay. It turned out he was a little bit of a fraudster. So we never actually did any projects with him. Right. I talked to him on the phone too, as I recall. Um, uh, we never did any projects with him, but years and years later, we found out that um, he had actually been um, involved in many uh, legal cases, um, mostly in California, I believe, where people yeah. were suing him for, you know, thousands of dollars here and there because of deals they had made that he didn't come through on and and so on. So it seemed like he was sort of the, the you know, the kind of guy who was a, uh, you know, a hustler, a bit of a, a bit of a scammer, you know, in addition to, yeah. you know, the other stuff he did. And it made it, it made me, you know, at, at one point I regretted that I was never able to do that project because it would have been an interesting project. But now I'm happy that I never talked to the guy again yeah. because it might have wound up. <laughs> You know, it might have wound up with me having sent him money for something and then having to sue him, you know, to, yeah. to try to get it back or something like that. Yeah, it was kind of a, phew, that was close. Yeah. 
Um, it was interesting we all, we that notice. he yeah. had done multiple times to your earlier point. Like it's not a one-time mm -hmm. show. It's like yeah. repeat. No. <laughs> yep. Yeah, all right, we, so we, we learned of it much later, actually. We learned it we learned about this whole um his whole history as a scammer after he had died. Kind of under somewhat yeah. weird circumstances. So um, while writing the book, we, we, yeah. we went back and looked at all this up while writing the book, you know, so it was sort of a revelation to us not that long yeah. ago. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, that, that was a very interesting story. Thank you. Yeah. So as we end, we always ask our guests who are prolific researchers and writers, authors, um, do you have any uh, book that you found influential or interesting and you think our audience might enjoy? Um, so influential and interesting uh for me, I, I think it's the book that I found most influential in my career was uh, Ulrich Neisser's Cognition and Reality. Um, I don't know if it's even still in print, but it was from the late 1970s. And it was sort of his book after he had uh, made a transition from traditional cognitive psychology, having written one of the first cognitive psychology textbooks in the 60s, to sort of a more ecological approach to memory uh, and perception research in the early 70s. And this was sort of his kind of rethinking of how cognition works. And, and for me, it was a hugely influential book. It, it still is one I think about all the time. Um, Amazing. And his, his work has been, you know, more than anybody else has probably had a huge influence on my career. Um, so yeah, that, that would probably be the one I would mention as an academic book. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's great. Uh, how about you, Chris? I'm going to go um, much more recent than the 70s. <laughs> um, and actually, maybe I'll give you two, if that's okay. Um, of course. One of them is um, one of my favorite books um, in the sort of behavioral science, you know, domain. And it's called Everything is Obvious, parentheses, Once You Know the Answer. <laughs> uh, and it's by Duncan Watts, um, who's a, a sociologist and um, computational um, computational social scientist at, um, at Penn. And it's, it's sort of about all of the illusions of cause and effect. And we've sort of talked about them to some extent in this discussion, and it's a, a theme that goes through, you know, a lot of our, our a lot of our writing. But I think Duncan yeah. has written a wonderful book about it with lots of interesting examples and yeah. ideas. Um, the other one is a very recent book by uh, Annie Duke called "Quit," um, and it's about the virtues of uh, giving up, um, at least in the right circumstances, uh, <laughs> and how you know there are sort of various illusions and. Um, and biases that sort of bias bias us towards keeping on doing what we're doing as opposed to stopping and, and maybe doing something else. And uh, I think it's a wonderful example of sort of applying ideas from behavioral science, um, you know, in a clever way to uh, what at first seems like a negative behavior, but showing how it can often be a positive, uh, a positive behavior. Amazing. Well, thank you for these recommendations. And all right, that's all the time we have today. Thank you again, for Dan and Chris, for being uh, my guests today. As you can see, these are very important conversations we are having with knowledgeable, incredibly qualified, and passionate experts whose unique perspective, uh, not only in their area of uh, expertise, but also its relationship and impact on executive function is informing us uh, to lead um, a better life. Um, that's my hope. And uh, of course... Um, uh, if you love what you are hearing, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Please um, get this book ASAP as well as share this book. It's really, um, you'll be only lying to yourself if you do not admit that you have been a victim of a fraud. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, lastly, uh, again, I look forward to seeing you all uh, once again right here on the next uh, Full Print prefrontal podcast. Uh, thank you again, Dan. Thank you, Chris, for joining me today. Thanks. It was great chatting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.